Welcome to Our Creator Calls, where we seek truth together. This week, we're going to talk about sex and faith, whether it's pornography, transgenderism, same-sex marriages, or even pedophilia. Why does it matter what we do when it comes to sex? And does anyone have the right to decide what is sexually moral? Most people are aware that there are certain rules in the Bible about certain types of sexual behavior, but very few understand that our Creator set specific boundaries regarding sex to protect all human beings and why they are so vital to keep, especially in today's highly sexualized culture. Philosopher and theologian Kirk Durston joins me today to share his thoughts on faith and sexuality in our culture, which he says is one of the primary challenges facing us today. Throughout history, when people did not follow the sexual boundaries that God set for us, their societies collapsed. And Kirk says we are dangerously close to the same thing happening to us. A voice. A voice calling in your wilderness. Well, hello, Kirk Durston. Thank you so much for joining me once again to continue our conversation about challenges that are facing the church today. Now, you did a really interesting seminar. They were all interesting, I'm sure. But this one really stuck out to me. It was faith and the challenge of sexuality in our culture. Now, as you know, sexuality is huge right now covers so many different things. There's a lot of people that are concerned about it, saying that there's all these things like pornography and transgenderism and same-sex marriages. I mean, it's just everywhere. So what would you say, if you could just break it down for us, what is the challenge facing facing people of faith today? Yeah, Gaetan. Well, it's a pleasure to be back here. And uh, to do with your question, the challenge of sexuality and faith. Essentially, if I were to sum it up in a nutshell, God has created us in his own image and likeness, which to think about it means that he's created us in the image of the triune God. And we ourselves have uh, a body, a soul, and a spirit, although some people would say the soul and the spirit are the same. But I think there's some uh, good biblical passages to say, no, they are two distinct parts of the human being. And so uh, there are verses in the Bible that I call Rosetta Stone verses. And a Rosetta Stone verse is named after the famous Rosetta Stone, which helped us understand uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics and some of the ancient languages. But these Rosetta Stone verses help us or open the window or shed light on many other passages in scripture that initially seemed to be unrelated or We didn't understand why they were there, but every once in a while, a Rosetta Stone verse suddenly puts it all together. And in this case, there is a Rosetta Stone verse in the New Testament that states that we should uh, abstain from fleshly lusts, and I quote, which wage war against the soul. Now, that's easy to just skim over and not realize what it's really saying there. And I did so for decades myself. We need to realize, first of all, that God designed and created sexuality. And uh, we get an idea of that in the, so- in the Song of Solomon in uh, the Old Testament. But it's 
it's beautiful and pure and right within the context of which it is intended to be used. That is a marriage between a man and a woman. Outside of that context, it can actually be one of the most destructive things that humanity can actually embark on if it's improperly used. And I don't say that basically on the, just on the strength of what the Bible says about this, about its waging war against the soul. But I also say that on the basis of secular research, that when a, when a, when a culture uh, begins to loosen its sexual constraints, and this is on the, uh, the research of J.D. Unwin, every culture that did that collapsed within three generations, no exceptions. And that's 86 cultures. Now, he studied that uh, back in the 1930s. And one might say, oh, well, you know, we've uh, advanced quite far from that. But that's not actually the case. Um, I was reading the comments of uh, Professor Robert P. George of Princeton University, who uh, happened to see my article that I'd written on this. And he actually recommended it. But he also stated that no one to date even right now in the academic world, has even touched J.D. Unwin's rigor and thoroughness on the issue of the relationship between sexual constraints in a culture and how well that culture flourished as a result. And what we can gain from just that secular research is that sexual morality, the, the, the moral laws on sexual morality that God has laid out and given to humanity, are designed to maximize human flourishing and minimize human suffering. And if we violate, if they're kind of like operating instructions. And if we violate those operating instructions, it'd be like using your laptop computer as a boat anchor, for example, you really reduce the usefulness of your laptop and it doesn't work very well uh, on the long term. If you do that, it's exactly the same thing with human civilizations and cultures, that few things are more destructive to a culture than to violate um, the, the, the moral laws on, sexual, on sexuality. But back to um, this waging war against the soul, that actually explains why it is so destructive. Uh, for example, if in fact, well, there's a verse, let's say for example, one verse says, I urge you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Uh, and people can read that all the time without seeing or asking the question. And the question is this, if you are to present your body as a living sacrifice to God, then who is the you that is presenting the body? And that is a very important question to ask. Or in other words, God clearly distinguishes between the body and the soul. And the, so, and the body is to be subject to you as a person. So if you were to think, what is a soul? Essentially, when you read what the Bible talks about or how the Bible God talks about to humans, the soul is essentially you. It is your essence. It is you. It is the you behind this doing the presenting of your body. It is the you who contemplates, performs moral deliberation. It is the you who appreciates justice and beauty, and it is the you who can actually worship God and be a good steward of the things you've been entrusted, including your body. So um, the, the soul, if you're going to look at a human being 
and say, if a human being is, is in the image of God with a soul, a body, and a spirit, and that's the image or model of the Trinity, then the soul, then the body corresponds to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is not just a body of God walking around on here on earth, but it does clearly say, and I quote, he is the exact representation. He's the physical representation, or it says in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So the body, Jesus Christ, the son of God represents and is God the father and represents God or represents himself in this world to the extent where Jesus said, I and the Father are one essence, or he who has seen me has seen the Father. In the same way, when you see me talking right now, you're just seeing my body talk, but you're actually listening to me. I am the one who is deliberating, who has a mind that interfaces with my brain and sends commands to my mouth and lips and so forth. So you're listening to what me, what I, as a, as a living soul, in fact, in another place in the New Testament, it says that when God created Adam, he created him, and I quote, as a living soul. Mm-hmm. So this is why it is so absolutely important that each person um, be a s- steward of their body in the way it was to be designed to be used. That is to abstain from the the normal, say, animal lusts that we all have, whether it's a lust for food or at all costs or sex or other pleasures that were designed by God, but can be twisted, used in the wrong way, in the wrong place at the wrong time. If we actually give in to fleshly lusts, then instead of the body, sort of the soul being, or the body being subject to the soul, to you, it it becomes, you become a slave of your body. It's kind of like a quadcopter or these little drones you see flying around with the four uh, propellers on them. If you keep the drone upright, at least normal drones, it flies perfectly fine. But if you flip the drone upside down, it's going to accelerate towards the ground rather than uh, higher up. So God wants us to, we have so, we have, we have no clue how much, uh, what the capabilities of an immortal human being have that we will have someday in eternity, far beyond anything we've imagined. But um, we can actually abdicate that and live according to, we'll just be subjected to our bodies rather than our bodies being subject to us as a living soul. You know, it's interesting because it it is such a demeaning thing when you think about it. When people mm-hmm. live by their base instincts, almost like animals, and people would perhaps disagree with me even saying that, but we are so much more than whatever our instincts would be, and we are degrading ourselves when we do that. So does that play into, getting back to that study you were talking about, does that play into why societies end up disappearing and disintegrating when people end up doing that, when they go to their base instincts instead of following the way that God intended us to live. Oh, absolutely. It, it definitely explains why these civilizations crumble and to, to flourish as a civilization. And J.D. Unwin did his measured the flourishing of a society or a culture by a number of factors. One was architecture, agriculture, music, literature, and so forth. 
to flourish. These are all things that only human beings are able to accomplish to any significant degree at all. And it's a result of us being a living eternal soul, of having a mind that has godlike um, or that's created in the to to be a model of God. Now we're not a trinity in the sense that God is. We're only a model or an image of the triune God. So it's important to distinguish that. We will never be God. We will never be even a God to be worshipped and so forth. No, we're, he, he describes us more accurately as his children if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and been spiritually reborn. But if that's not the case, if the body begins to rule you as a living soul, then your capabilities, the, the, the potentials that every human being has created in the image and likeness of God is now subjugated to the same instincts that higher animals have. Dogs, for example, uh, any number of, of um, animals that are governed by just instinct. And that cannot sustain a culture that in, 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 continues to increase in technology proper proper technology or good technology and there's there's good and bad technology but increase in its ability to produce beauty and art in architecture in music those are all things attributes of the human soul of a living eternal soul but when that's subjugated then we become god actually describes the end result of a human being who becomes enslaved or subjugated to their body he describes them using terms like, and I quote, uh, creatures of instinct. Um, another one is um, unreasoning animals. In fact, J.D. Unwin found that when a culture reached the tipping point and crossed that point in their own loosening up the sexual morality, there were three things that happened. One is the abandonment of rational thought, rational thinking. And that is because rational thinking is an activity of the mind. And when the mind being subject becomes subjected to the body, then unfortunately um, it's the body that rules, not the mind. And rational thought begins to deteriorate. And that is already happening in epidemic proportions in our culture today. Another thing that happens is abandonment of belief in God or in some cultures like the Hellenistic one or the Roman one in their higher gods that actually had jurisdiction over nature. Those beliefs are abandoned and things lapse into superstition. And uh, well, basically superstition is a good umbrella term. The third thing that happened is that lifelong monogamous marriages were replaced with serial monogamy or even just serial relationships, polyamory relationships with more than one person. And all three of those indicators that Unwin wrote about in 1930s, his observation of these 86 cultures provided a testable set of predictions that we could use to see if his observations hold true today. And our own sexual revolution has happened long after the time of Unwin. And we have seen all three of those things happen in epidemic proportions in our culture today. So everything is in place where people begin to not think rationally or not make decisions rationally based on logical thought, but are now making decisions on what they want to believe. And so often when that's subjected to, let's say, what the body wants, it's natural animal desires, uh, that's not a good direction to take if you want to sustain 
a high culture of music and art and beauty and architecture and agriculture and literature and so forth. And it's also interesting when you talked about that they lose their ability to have rational thought. If you look mm -hmm. at what's going on in our culture today, people, I, I've seen, you know, interviews, streeters, where, well, I can't remember his name now, where he did a, a documentary on what is a woman. And he went up to different people and asked them, what is a woman? And literally, people would, you know, are so not wanting to offend anybody else, will not say, he said, well, would you would you be okay if I said that, that I was a, a woman? And they just said, well, if that's what you think you are, you know, it's just, that's where our culture is. That's irrational. You know, we are now to the point where even though science clearly differentiates between a man and a woman in terms of their sexual gender, people are so afraid to offend, they don't even want to say that. They don't even want to admit that that is the case. And there's just so much confusion out there. So did he give any kind of indication? You said we're already, you know, definitely showing all of these signs how far along are we, would you say, compared to these other societies that were studied? A chilling question indeed. Uh, Unwin said there were basically three generations, which he equated to roughly one century, 100 years. Now, uh, a sexual revolution or the tipping point does not occur on a particular day of the year, but in our own culture, it would probably have occurred sometime in the 1980s. And the tipping point, I was shocked when I found out what the tipping point is. I was expecting some sort of horrible, perverted, twisted type of sexuality that had risen in some dark uh, back room somewhere. But no, uh, the tipping point, and this is just pure observation on the basis of 86 cultures, was when sexual relations prior to marriage, well, I, I use the term marriage, he used the term prenuptial, because different societies and cultures have different terms for it. But sexual relations, prenuptial sexual relations were normalized, that is totally acceptable, and became the norm in a culture that was the tipping point. Now, premarital sex and prenuptial sexual relations have gone on since the <laughs> for all of history. But it's a very different thing when they become the norm when they become totally accepted in a culture and when that becomes totally accepted and practiced that's the tipping point so it would be roughly the 1980s which means we are now at the end of the first generation out of the three and the first generation unwin said there's not a whole lot of change in the first generation simply because uh there are still people from before the tipping point who are alive who still act as sort of salt, if you were to use a preservative term. And secondly, there is enormous momentum, technological and artistic and so forth, enormous momentum that is a culture has built up that it doesn't immediately disappear. It only begins to level out. So the first generation, you don't see a huge change. But we're now entering the second generation, and that's when Unwin's observation showed there is some significant uh, downturn in the culture. And we're we're seeing that today, and one of the one of the symptoms of a down, of of a person becoming well, one of the symptoms of a culture which has lost its way is by looking at the mental health of the people in that culture. So when you remove God and rational thinking and a lifelong 
uh, monogamous marriages, which produce a, a wonderful context within which children can grow up and have and, and acquire a sense of identity from their siblings and their extended family of cousins and aunts and uncles. Once that's gone, that absolutely actually removes a major portion of what normal people, what many people use to give themselves a sense of significance and identity. And Mary Eberstadt in a recent book called Primal Scream really dives into that particular thing. And as a result, mental health challenges explode, which is, is the majority. By majority, I mean well over 50%, and that'd be conservative. A recent surveys done in my area here in Canada say it's more like 86% or 80% amongst university students where they struggle with significant mental health challenges, including what's the point of where I'm going? And, and if not chronic depression, at least acute depression on, a, on oftentimes uh, on that they're experiencing in, in their yearly lives and also just a lack of direction and aimlessness. And when that begins to disappear, a sense of the work ethic begins to erode. Creativity begins to diminish. You just don't feel like creating beautiful things and going to the effort and work that it takes to design beautiful works of architecture and so forth. That begins to become corrupted. In the third generation, so we're in the second generation now, and we are seeing it's painfully obvious. We are seeing, for example, a huge shortage in people willing to pick up the slack even in the work area. And there's some disturbing stats even here in Canada within the last few weeks on the news that uh, we are in serious trouble when fewer and fewer, when a smaller percentage of the population is uh, has the incentive or has the the desire and the vision to work towards greater things. And Anand pointed out that no no culture is homogeneous. Um, there's always different types of people in every culture, but when the, when the majority of the culture uh, loses their humanity slowly but surely through uh, su surrendering to bodily, their bodily or animal drives, then uh, a lot of things begin to collapse. In the third generation, it's, it's, it's complete a destruction of that civilization. So would you say, given the fact that we have a culture that is immersed in technology, immersed in so much information, so many things happening all the time, things seem to be changing constantly, would you say that there's a possibility that we will actually experience this uh, degradation and collapse faster than perhaps other societies have? I, I personally think so, uh, because simply because, for example, the World Wide Web we can, um, I mean, look at pornography, for example. A friend of mine is a uh, psychologist and he specializes in uh, porn addiction or addiction to porn online pornography. And uh, he, he counsels people, a professional psychologist. And he gave me some stats as to how many people and what percentages and what countries are involved. It's, it's jaw-dropping. And because of the internet, uh, everybody from who has access, and we're talking children commonly around the age of 8 or 10, first exposed to online porn, uh, can be immersed in that and see anything they want uh, continuously without having to go to a whole lot of effort to do that. So it's kind of like dropping in the old days, 
a drop of poison into, let's say, some gelatin. It takes a long time to diffuse into the gelatin. Today, it's like dropping a, a drop of poison into a glass of water that's already being constantly stirred and mixed. So almost immediately, that perversion and that degradation could begin to take another step forward. So our online technology, the other thing is, is a, is a need for a quick, I don't know, we're, we, we're used to having everything happen right now and in sound bites and really quickly. So things, pleasures that require, let's say, a, a proper long-term con context, let's say the pleasure of a of a um, pure sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, people don't have time for that. They don't even have the relationships for that. I've heard of so many young guys that I've worked with say, man, it's been a rough day. I've been studying. I need to take a break. I'm just going to go do some porn for half an hour. It's just a matter of a quick fix, a quick pick me up, so to speak, a quick way of just getting a bit of a thrill and then continuing on. So it's, I, I would say technology is not good or bad, but it can be used in horrible ways. And unfortunately, this is one of the ways it's, it's allowed, let's say, the evil to spread instantly around the globe. So for that reason right there, I think we are probably heading towards a collapse much faster than other civilizations. But there's another reason is for the first time in human history, with the invention of, of various contraceptives and the pill, uh, people can have uh, sexual relations and not have to worry too much about pregnancies and so forth. So as a result, uh, the sexual freedom has been much greater in this culture today than it's ever been before in human history, because there's not that sort of impediment or drawback to possibly deal, having to deal with a pregnancy. The other thing is if a pregnancy does occur, we now have the technology to abort that, uh, that child. And I was surprised to see on the World Health Organization website, I was exploring how many abortions do occur in the world. It's 29% globally. 29% of all conceptions now end in abortion. That's World Health Organization. 29%. And I realized two things. Number one, our culture today believes it has the right to have sex, you know, sexual freedom. It has, it's a right. It doesn't, it's not supposed to be constrained within the marriage between a man and a woman as God had designed it to be. So when our culture believes it has the right and it has the means to do it, then you have an explosion of, let's say, well, basically, if you look at the war between the flesh and the soul, uh, that war is now much more, the soul is being subjugated radically faster than it has in any other civilization, simply because of those two things. And we're doing things that are not good. I'm talking about addiction to pornography. I'm talking about 29% of all pregnancies ending in abortion. I, I do believe that if our if humanity survived long enough, and I'm not sure it's going to pull through this time, I think we may be possibly coming close to the last days of humanity as prophesied in the scriptures. But let's say if it survived long enough to rebuild out of the ashes of this civilization, the people then will look back at our culture at the gigantic holocaust of human life. Um, which was a result of people thinking, I have the right to have sex without the consequences 
which, of course, pregnancy is often a consequence. I've often said uh, to my own children, you know, if you're going to have sex outside of marriage, be ready to have a child. And it will either be a child that you will give life to or a child that will be dead. But either way, it's still a child. And the, the consequences of that are devastating. You know, it, it's interesting. I became a Christian when I was 34. And although I wasn't very promiscuous, you know, when I was younger, I still couldn't imagine getting married to somebody without having sex with them first. You know, that was just the way it was. That's just what people did. And now, you know, I've been walking with the Lord now for 27 years. I totally changed my views on so many things because I could <laughs> see that just like we as parents, we set boundaries for our children because we want them to remain safe. This is such a huge boundary that is uh, so necessary to remain uh, safe. And it's caused so much damage, like you said, pornography, uh, the the killing of human life is just like a, it's a, people just don't even think, really think much about it. And then of course, there's also, you think about child trafficking, which is now surpassing drugs and arms as the biggest trade around the world. You know, there's, I was hearing an interview just a, a little while ago about, you know, robots, we could have robots and have sex with robots. I mean, it's just totally out of control what is going on in our society. And yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of people really talking about it. I mean, we're talking about it now. You hear interviews here and there, but what do we do? Because when I think about all of these questions, when I think about these topics, to me, all of this is so demeaning to what it means to be human you know, because we're not animals. And when you think about any person, most people, I would suggest, the most important thing for most people is to have relationships with other people who, you know, with another person who truly loves them, who truly cares about them. And that, I think, is why a lot of people are so anxious and depressed, because in this age of social media, how many people really have relationships of, with people that truly care about them and how many people are wondering who are they going to marry and who's going to care about me? How can I really trust people? I mean, people are people no matter where you live or when you lived, right? But where, where do we go from here? How do we dial this back? Because it just seems to be going out of control to the point where how can we actually get back to some kind of semblance of sanity? It's like the world has gone insane in a lot of ways. That is the big question. Where do we go from here? Um, I think what, what you said there is that people are designed for relationships is critical to maybe hang on to. It's one of our deepest cravings. It's a craving for love and real love, not some bodily function that people are doing together in, in some room, but the real thing. And uh, I am not sure. I've wanted to write an article on what is real love. It's the hardest article I've ever decided to sit down and write. But thinking about it for years because it's, well, I, I suspect I know why. And that is love is probably the most powerful 
important thing there is. And I say that on the basis of something God said. He said that, first of all, he is love. That's one of his descriptions that he puts on himself. He is the origin of love. And he says the greatest command and the, the great and foremost command is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second greatest, he said, is to love your neighbor as you do yourself. Now, um, we love him, of course, because he has first loved us with a love that's unquantifiable. In fact, my limited experience, and I say limited because if I ex ever experienced the full unshielded magnitude of the love of God, I'm sure I would physically not be able to sustain that. I'd probably pass into the hereafter right there. But my limited uh, experience of the love of God is such that uh, we 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 have no concept as to just how great and how powerful that is. So the first step I would say that we need to take as an individual, if we are experiencing that war against the the soul, and I I can't speak for everybody, but I think most people are, if not everyone is, is to first of all realize that there is love is real. Uh, there is a real type of love that's far beyond anything anybody has previously imagined. And that can only be found, first and foremost, the first step is through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so God has actually done that for us. He's actually, he is the origin of flawless justice and purity, as well as the origin of flawless love. And so what he did is he became a human being walked among us to set fully satisfy the demands of flawless justice so that he could then satisfy the demands of flawless love if we will accept what jesus christ has done for us and that is dying for our own moral wrongdoings and to give us the gift of eternal life that's the very first step on the road and the second step Actually, there's probably quite a few second steps, but things that I have found also in my own life has begin to, well, the, 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 the distinguish between authentic Christianity and then the religion of human-driven Christianity, let's say, let's call it that. Authentic Christianity cannot be lived under normal human power. We can't do it. Um, we have to put ourselves in the arms of God on a daily basis. God, here I am. Work within me as you desire. Change me any way you desire and protect me and take care of me from my temptations. That was one of the aspects of the Lord's Prayer. We have to look at God when we're tempted in the areas, let's say, the fleshly lusts as we've been talking about. Once a person has actually put their faith in Christ, there is a kind of a spiritual rebirth that occurs within them. And then they are in a position to finally be able to win this war against the soul. But that's not the end of the story. There are things that an authentic Christian, it's a relationship with God. And it means, well, let's say, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from our temptations. And what that means is that we should never look at ourselves as being, I can handle the temptations now, or I'm going to work real hard to not uh, just let the body or the fleshly lust rule, rule me. That doesn't work. Um, you might be able to resist most of the time, 
or sometimes, but it's not going to work. That's, that's just so unfulfilling. The solution is to really think what it means when you ask God to deliver you from your temptations. Literally, at least what I do in prayer is I literally say, God, I put myself in your, take me in your arms and, and, and protect me from my temptations. Don't leave, keep me from those things uh, and deliver me from those. And I think included in that is daily Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing me from my temptations. And that's all an expansion of the Lord's prayer where he says, deliver us from our temptations. But that can only occur, I think, when there's total surrender into the arms of God. That is by total surrender, what I mean is, there's nothing held back. There's no terms, no conditions. Um, there's no areas in your life you're withholding, but you're just giving it all to him. And that has to happen on a daily basis because we constantly want to keep, keep back. I would say it could be illustrated in a prayer that I've often prayed, God, do to me anything you desire to do. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, you know, that that's anything like, what if I woke up tomorrow morning with an IQ of say 15? 15 is, to put it mildly, considerably below the average. So I would no longer be able to do anything probably uh, other than just basic bodily functions. But am I willing to go down that road if that's what God desires for me? And I, I just believe that God loves us far beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And if that's what he wants to do to me, then it is for my best interests in the long term. So that means that you're, that's what I mean by total surrender into the arms of God on a daily basis. You're holding nothing back. And I'll even go so far as to say, if there's an area in my life that I'm withholding, that I'm, and I probably don't even know about it, I, I don't want that. I want that to end right now. Invade that area and work within me by your Holy Spirit to make me the kind of person you want me to be. There's other things like I love to read the Bible on a daily basis, just to contemplate it, to um, journal on it. That's that's and I ask God often before I'll start reading, I ask God, weave this into my body and my soul. I just want to read. I'm not interested in just getting facts. I want God's word to be woven right into the fabric of my being. Another important thing that I like to practice is, the, is to ask God to create within me a beautiful mind. And this is a road that I will walk for the rest of my life. It's a long-term thing. It's like a potter shaping a vessel out of clay to become a beautiful piece of work, a beautiful pottery or a vase or something. I want God to do that with my mind which is really to do it with me as a living soul. And it's only within that context when the soul is healthy and it can only have health through the one who made it, through God, through a relationship with God, through Christ. When the soul is healthy, it is then in a powerful position to win that war against the soul, win the, the, to properly be, to be a good steward, an excellent steward of the body which God has also created as part of our very being. Well, I can tell you from just my own experience, I became a believer. Well, I was always a believer in God, but I didn't follow him. I didn't really know him. And that was my quest, was to know him. And when I finally submitted 
and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ when I was 34, everything changed. I had yes. people tell me, oh, you need to get back to reality. And I would tell them, I have found reality. This is reality. Now I see reality. And, you know, when you talk about this war against the soul, you know, I had to conform. I had to basically conform my mind to the mind of Christ. I had mm -hmm. to transform my will and make it obedient to what God's will is. And then my emotions followed suit. You know, if you just kind of break it down, the soul and those three things, because what I believe is going to determine what I do and what I do will have consequences on how I feel in my emotions. And we're seeing that in spades all yeah. through our world today. There's there's consequences, right? And so, yeah. you know, that's why I, I really believe in being thankful. You know, the Bible talks about being thankful in all circumstances, because no matter what's happening, like you said, if I really believe, and I do, that God is love and that he loves me and that anything that is going on, I don't believe anything can happen unless he allows it because he is yeah. sovereign and he is king and he is reigning right now. So if anything happens to me or in my life, especially difficult things, you know, the Bible says rejoice. Well, it's not always easy to rejoice, but when we rejoice, there's something about being thankful okay, Lord, what are you teaching me? What do you want to teach me? What is it? How do you want me to grow? And I always learn and I always become a better person. I always become more like Christ. I mean, that's the, the ultimate aim is for us to become like our father, like our creator, you know? So this gets me to the war in our soul. Like I've mentioned before, I believe all of these things, many of these things going on in our society, especially the sexual ones, are very demeaning to human beings. Many times throughout this interview, you've mentioned the war on the soul. It actually really is a war. There actually really is a spiritual war going on for every single human being to try and take us away from God. That's the whole premise of this show. What's getting in the way of me getting closer to you? What is it that I'm believing or not believing that is preventing me from seeing the truth of who my creator is. And we, each and every one of us, we are masterpiece creations. Human beings are incredible because we're made in the image of God. But there is this war. And as we see in our society, I see it amping up so much, as you've said, okay, it's like there is this war to demean human beings to make us our, as base as possible, to prevent us from having um, relationships that are honoring and loving, that are uh, mutilating children to say that, okay, we're going to change your gender when you're, don't even, you're not even old enough to even know what you're doing with, with drugs that are going to change the trajectory of your whole life. There's so many things that are going on. We're aborting children all the time. It's okay. We're having casual sex all the time. It's okay. We see this on TV shows all the time. It's We're really out of control. And I don't think that people are seeing, including most Christians, at least from my observation, that this is a war. It is a war against human beings. Because if you have same-sex marriages, you are preventing human beings from being born. If you have abortions, you are 
killing human beings. If you change children's gender or anybody's gender, a man's gender, a woman's gender, you're preventing them from having children. It is, I see this as a war against us and our ability to live not only the way God wanted us to live in the loving relationships that he wants us to have, but it's actually just changing our ability to even continue to populate the earth. Because, I mean, how many times have we heard that there's, you know, we have an overpopulation problem? This is really a war. And I think we need to wake up to that fact that that's, that's my, my assessment of it anyway. And what better place to do that than through sexuality, which God made as something for us to enjoy and to have, to um, enjoy within the confines of what he gave us. To me, that is the if the enemy of our souls what better place to to control us than there because there's a lot of things that are happening because of that that's the way i see it i and that's like you said that's the sexuality part plays into the degradation of society all through time in all of these 86 different cases that you've said right yeah the i think that uh human sex well basically sexual pleasure is one of the let's say, more pleasurable pleasures that God has created for humanity. But because it is one of the more pleasurable pleasures, uh, it is it is easy to use it as a hook, as a maybe foothold. And it's who's using it as a hook, who's using it as a foothold is the, is the question. Now, I, I know that a lot of people in our culture don't believe that there is actually a being called Satan. Um, at least they say they don't. I, I don't quite understand the obsession with horror movies that many people have and movies about evil and so forth on the one side. But what we really need to, to believe is that Jesus said there really is a being called Satan. He also referred to that being as the ruler of this world. No, he's not the ultimate ruler. God is, uh, but he has been given an enormous amount of power when he's get, when God calls him the ruler of this world, temporary, mind you. And he also describes him as the father of lies. That doesn't mean that, that what that means is that he is the master manipulator, the master deceiver. He is far better at deception than any human being has ever been. Any mm -hmm. government has ever been. He is the master of deception, the ultimate puppeteer, so to speak. So that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with that. But at the same time, we need to realize that God is infinitely more powerful. In fact, if a person has put their faith in Christ, God says that greater is he who dwells within you, that is his Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. He says, devil, and he will flee from you. Now, flee means run like mad. It means get out of here big time fast. That's the kind of power that God has given those people who have had a spiritual rebirth through Jesus Christ. Now, as a follower of Christ, it's important to be, uh, how, he, how did Jesus describe it? Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So we need to know who our adversary is. 
but we need have zero fear of the adversary. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, people have zero fear of the adversary without even knowing who the adversary is or how the adversary is attacking. And especially if they don't even believe in the existence of the adversary. And this, what other thing that God says about him is that he prowls the earth like a roaring lion looking for those whom he can destroy. So Satan actually has a plan for every person's life, for every person that's listening to this. Mm-hmm. And his plan is to destroy. His plan is to destroy everything good that God has ever made, to destroy the planet, to destroy the human beings, to destroy you as an individual, to destroy human civilizations. So it, it's a very important that we understand what the adversary's plan is for us, and it is to actually destroy everything, everything about you as an individual, about humanity, uh, to destroy this beautiful world. Uh, He's not going to succeed, however, in general. But for individuals, unfortunately, the final decision is up to each person because um, there's only two. Jesus says there's only two ultimate destinations for humanity. So one of the things I think it's important to, to understand is that it doesn't matter what our past is. We can have been, let's say, well, the worst thing you could think of, whatever that might be in your mind. We could have done all sorts of terrible things. We could have been totally given over to sexuality, to se- to the fleshly desires. We could have become grossly dehum- dehumanized. Things could have been done to us that we don't even want to remember. All of that is in the past. It's God actually offers us a new spiritual rebirth, a whole, you can draw a line in, in time, in history. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who loves you enough to have paid the ultimate price, have demonstrated his love in the most powerful way possible, to totally remove and erase and annihilate all the moral things, immoral things you've ever done to the extent to even remove them from even the memory of God, to forget those things as if they had never occurred and to make you pure again. I think I'm locked up, aren't I? Yeah, you just you just locked up, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll just Just that last little back. part there. Yeah. So you can draw a line in history when you receive Christ and become a whole new person. Old things have passed away. All things are new from that point on. And it's actually true. And I know you, Gaetan, have shared with us the huge difference that it made in your life. And it has made a huge difference in mine. I would not trade my relationship with God for anything this galaxy or the entire universe has to offer that's different. Uh, it's, it is the ultimate. And here's why I think it is. God describes himself as the father of lights, the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift. He is actually the origin of beauty, the origin of love, Mm -hmm. the origin of power and art and music, the origin of every good thing. What could possibly be better than to be welcomed with open arms by such a being as God, who is the origin of every good thing, to love him, everything If you think about it, everything you've ever loved, talking about at least the good within those things, everything you've ever loved ultimately, well, 
I don't want to say if you love music that all music comes from God. No, that's not what I'm saying. We can use those things that God has given, the good and the beautiful, and we can misuse them. We can twist them, reuse them in the wrong way in the wrong time. Okay, let's understand that and set that aside. If we want pure music, pure beauty, pure love, pure art, pure power, anything, every pure friendship. I mean, you could go on. God is the origin of those things. He is those things personified. And this is the only way, only, only way I know how to win that war. But with him, that war can be won and things are flipped around so that you become a living eternal soul um, with, with always the best, no matter how good it gets in this life, the best is yet to come even in the final chapters and seconds of this life, then you know the best is really close, far better than anything that has even entered the heart of humanity. So I just like to end on a very positive note. We are in a very real war, but there is enormous power and beauty and purity available to every person through Jesus Christ to win that war. I could not agree more. And my hope, Really, the reason why I'm doing this podcast is for people to realize each and every person how precious yes. each person is beyond mm. what I think we really know. Because mm -hmm. we're made in the image of God, so we have the capacity when we're connected to the source of life, we can create. We are all creators because we're made in the image of the Creator. Yes, But we also, if we are not in tune with him, if we're not in relationship with him, if we've given ourselves over, then we can also follow the other path, which is destruction, which is lies, which is, uh, you know, deception. So really, it's always a choice. You know, God said in, in the word, in Deuteronomy, choose now who, choose life or death, which, which choice? Because really, that's the choice. Are you going to live or are you going to choose death? And my hope and prayer is that people will choose life and choose goodness and truth and all the things that you've talked about. Well, thank you so much, Kirk. As always, it's uh, been a really interesting conversation. And once again, we could talk about this for hours. I think we've just kind of uh, tapped the surface, but um, hopefully this will leave people with something to think about. And before we go, why don't we just pray for those that are listening, that uh, they could come to a real knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's just the beginning. Do you want me to pray? Yeah, sure. Did you have a, okay. Father, I ask that uh, for those who have been listening, that you would open their hearts and their eyes to this enormous possibility to what this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, that they can actually draw a line in history and start a whole new life. I pray especially for those who are, who feel that they are just too unlovable or they've done too many bad things or they are too lost or that you couldn't possibly love them. Lord, I ask that you would just let them know that you do love them. 
help them to take that step, that you value them far beyond anything they've ever conceived and that you love them so much. I pray that you will bring them to truly know you through Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. You are the creator, and we are made in your image. And I pray that you would help each and every person listening to this interview, wherever each one of us is, to be able to come to a, a knowledge of you and start a new life, a new creation, a new relationship with the one person who knows each and every one of us more than we even know ourselves. And you know the purposes and the giftings and all of the beauty that you've put in each and every one of us. I ask that you would not allow people to be demeaned, but that you would help people to see how precious each and every one, each and every person is beyond what we can even understand. We truly are a masterpiece creation made in your image. And we just ask that you would bring many to a saving knowledge of, of who you are. Thank you. Thank you, Kirk. I appreciate you uh, joining me today and look forward to our next discussion. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. I'm glad to be part of this discussion today. All right. Have a great day. You too. A voice. When I accepted that Jesus is the truth that I had been seeking and the only way to eternal life, I was forever changed. In that moment, Jesus rescued me out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered me into his kingdom of glorious light. He truly set this captive free. So what about you? Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. When you're ready to receive Jesus as your Savior, just talk to him. He's waiting for you with open arms. Our Creator calls. Are you listening? There is one love, one truth, one way to know. All darkness must go. A voice, a voice calling in your wilderness.